Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of alt-rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. When punk rock first appeared in the middle 1970s, the major record labels in North America did not care. They were happily making millions and millions of dollars from big rock bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles. I got a peaceful, easy and there was millions more coming from disco. That was sweeping the world. Kind of like a plague, but a profitable one. So why would they bother with this weird stuff bubbling up from tiny, scary clubs on both sides of the Atlantic? They were too busy going to big stadium shows and getting down at Studio 54. But this new music just wouldn't go away. So when Led Zeppelin broke up and the Stones and the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac disappeared up their own butts and the disco bubble finally burst, the record executives looked to this weird music and thought, let's see if we can tame it. Maybe we can market the gentler and less intense band under the umbrella of something we can call, uh, New Wave. Oh, they tried with punk, but they got it really, really wrong. You gotta wonder what was going through that executive's head when the Ramones were picked to open shows for Toto. No, seriously, the Ramones were the opening act for Toto on one tour. Did not make that up. It happened in Lake Charles, Louisiana on January 26, 1979. They were also paired up with Foreigner and Blue Oyster Cult. But we have to be fair. The general public in North America just didn't get punk. When the Sex Pistols appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine in the fall of 1977, it was one of their poorest selling issues ever. Mind you, the headline read, Rock is sick and living in London. And the story itself began with a quote from Isaiah 324. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Yeah, I don't want to read about that. After that, most Rolling Stone writers were instructed to stop writing about this music. Go back to the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and the Grateful Dead. Punk's bad for business. Really bad. Just stay away from it. But there were people who got it. And frankly, fans of non-mainstream music were quite happy to be left alone. They were into this new music precisely because they hated the mainstream. 
And over the next dozen years, the musical underground was allowed to gestate, to develop, to evolve undisturbed. It slowly mutated and evolved into something rather unique and very powerful. This is the complete history of alt-rock, chapter 8. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and here in Chapter 8, we're going to talk about American hardcore punk, the birth of North American indie rock, and the first use of the word alternative. But before we get to any of that, we have to finish up with this whole notion of new wave. Now remember that this is a marketing plan, a way for the record labels to sell punk's less threatening cousins. Now, this is not to say that a lot of this music wasn't cool. I mean, it was. And it was certainly extremely important to the history of rock and roll because you can make the argument that without New Wave, there might have never been music videos in the way that we had music videos. And if that didn't happen, no MTV. And with no MTV, well, just try and imagine how things might have been. That, famously, is the first song played on MTV just after midnight on August 1st, 1981. It was The Buggles and Video Killed the Radio Star. Now, MTV didn't have a lot to choose from in those days. When they signed on, their entire library consisted of about 250 videos, and 30 of them were by Rod Stewart. The good news is that the parent company of MTV, Warner Brothers, owned a lot of record labels. And these labels were instructed to get on the video bandwagon so that MTV would have a steady supply of new product. Now, there was uh, skepticism at first. A TV channel that showed nothing but music videos 24 hours a day? That's insane. Nobody's going to watch that. But back then, they were also saying exactly the same thing about 24-hour movie channels, 24-hour sports channels, and even 24-hour news channels. No one expected MTV to be as powerful as it was. It didn't take long for everyone, labels, managers, bands, to see that there was a direct correlation between showing a video on MTV and record sales. Another thing to remember, the music industry was deep in recession in the early 80s. No wonder it didn't take long for other labels to start budgeting for music videos. And within a year, MTV and music videos became integrated into the marketing and promotion budgets of all the labels. MTV quickly began to affect the course of music because it began to really matter what you looked like. And this is incredibly important, and this is where New Wave really comes in. See, before the music video, rock stars were always distant, unknowable, and mysterious. They might as well have been aliens. The only time you got to see them was either in a magazine, during a rare TV appearance, or live at a concert. Beyond that, you had no visual idea or impression of these people. It was all in your imagination. The music video changed all that. Performers, marketers, and directors all began to emphasize looks and glitz. And it wasn't long before style began to surpass substance. But there was more to it than just that. After the nihilism of punk and all this talk about burning down the past and rebuilding the present, people were actually ready for something new. The brutal recession of the early 80s needed an antidote. Fun and romanticism sounded good. Let's take the past, give it a modern sheen, and sing about love and the future instead of how awful it was in the present. This new music became an escape, and because it pointed forward, it offered optimism. 
And it was also very slick, thanks to some new technological inventions. Synthesizers became more powerful, and more importantly, they became polyphonic. Let me explain that. The older monophonic machines could only handle one note at a time. And that was okay for playing a lead line or a melody, but you couldn't play chords. And you certainly couldn't play it like a piano. The new polyphonic machines changed all that. And then there was something called a Fairlight. This was a hideously expensive keyboard and sampling device. It could do less than what you can do with an iPhone today, but it cost over $30,000. But 300 studios were persuaded to invest in them, and the sounds they got were unlike anything anyone had ever heard. But wait, let's just go back to MTV. Because it was desperate for videos in the early days, the network had to get whatever it could. British acts, of course, had been making videos for years, so that was a source. And all these unknown British bands, the very same bands being marketed as New Wave by the record labels, suddenly began to get this massive new exposure in the United States. These guys were at the very thin edge of the wedge. Realizing that they had a very attractive, very stylish, very telegenic pop group, their label invested $200,000 to make three videos shot in Sri Lanka. The gamble worked, and they sold a gazillion records. The band was Duran Duran. After Duran Duran, New Wave exploded in North America. Human League, Eurythmics, ABC, Dead or Alive, Depeche Mode, The Fix, A Flock of Seagulls, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and dozens more invaded North American TV screens. The gloss and the fun and the escape they offered was just what everyone needed when the economy was in the toilet. Once those bands were accepted, Acts like The Clash, and The Cure, and Billy Idol, and The English Beat, and Madness, and OMD, and The Jam somehow made it through. And once North Americans saw how it was done, domestic bands got into it. The B-52s, Missing Persons, Rough Trade, The Romantics, The Cars. And finally, there was a proper place for those two bands who stuck out so much amongst all those punks at CBGB. Blondie and The Talking Heads. Talking Heads from 1983, and along with Blondie, they became the biggest selling American New Wave bands. The New Wave era started in 1979 and had a good run before it was done by, oh, at least 1985. What started out as an underground sound connected to the punk rock explosion grew to the point where it became very mainstream, and for a while it was the mainstream. But what of the underground? Was there anything still down there? Oh, yes. And the bigger New Wave got, the more determined they were to stay down there. Let me hammer this home one more time. Although most of the bands of the original punk rock explosion of the 70s did not last more than a few years, the movement as a whole left behind an important consequence. Enthusiasm and access should be the only prerequisites for making rock and roll. Making music should be something that anyone could do, regardless of age or sex or race or economic background or even musical ability. This was fine on an artistic level. Commercially, uh, not so much. Instead, the major record labels picked off the most commercially acceptable bits, called it New Wave, and proceeded to bleed it dry. Anything they couldn't use was, 
well, essentially ignored. But that turned out to be a good thing. Cut off from any kind of access to the mainstream through the standard major label routes, several emerging strands in the North American underground scene were allowed to evolve in semi-isolated, self-sufficient, and self-governing regional enclaves. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Boston, Chicago. These scenes all had their own bands, and their own clubs, and their own record stores, and their own independent record labels, and in some cases, their own underground-friendly radio stations. It was a layer of rock and roll that lay far below the radar of most music fans, which is exactly where fans of this stuff liked it. Let's look at some of them. Now, to most people, California rock meant the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and Jackson Brown. But in Hollywood, things were a little more rugged. There were these clubs populated by groups like the Germs. Now, they were led by the self-destructive Darby Crash. He was almost lost to history because he had the misfortune of dying of a heroin overdose one day before John Lennon was assassinated. The Germs were one of literally hundreds of bands that sprang up in the wake of the Ramones, who were on the road almost continuously. Like them and the English punks, the Germs showed everyone that you could play two chords very fast for two minutes, and that was really all you needed to do. The Germs were also notable for the fact that one of their members was Pat Smear. He was later to be hired as a sideman for both Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. Then came X, the group that added some much-needed vindication to the West Coast scene. They sounded very punk, but they laced their stuff with smart and intelligent lyrics. X would have an important and lasting influence in the newly born scene in California. Now here's a weird thing about the California underground in the early 1980s. Although much of the music industry is headquartered in California, few record labels were interested in the Hollywood underworld. Now take the case of Black Flag. Although the Flag were clearly one of the best underground groups in all of Southern California, there wasn't a single record label willing to risk signing them. Conventional West Coast wisdom was that punk was over. It was a fad. So why bother signing a punk band? So in true do-it-yourself spirit, the Flag formed their own record label. They called it SST, after an old electronic company. Everything was handled by the guitarist, the bass player, and two roadies. And out front, this kid from D.C. named Henry Rollins. Everybody's gonna hang out here tonight! All right! We'll pass out on the couch! All right! Black Flag struggled for a few years, almost losing a legal battle with a major label that would have killed both the band and their label, but eventually they got the hang of running an independent company and did quite well. Bad Religion, another Southern California punk band in a similar bind. They also couldn't find anyone willing to distribute their self-produced records, and that's when the group formed an indie label called Epitaph in 1981. Like SST, Epitaph had issues early on. 
finding bands to sign wasn't a problem because by now there were more than enough to go around. The key, as with every other indie label, was distribution. How you got your records in stores across the continent, how you got them sold, and how you got paid. But Epitaph persevered and survived, learning how to use the distribution networks of major labels without being influenced by the system. The company moved a million punk albums a year, until they signed this Orange County band called The Offspring, who eventually sold 20 million records on their own. I should also mention one more important indie label, the ultra-political Dead Kennedys, were recorded by several labels saying that they could have a contract if they would just you know, change their name. Unacceptable. The DKs were all about destroying the status quo. For example, in 1979, singer Jello Biafra ran for mayor of San Francisco. He finished fourth in a field of 10. One of his campaign promises was to force all city politicians to dress up in clown suits. So instead of compromising, the DKs formed their own record label, which they called Alternative Tentacles major influence in the Bay Area, which would later result in bands like Rancid and Green Day. Now, like I said earlier, California wasn't the only place with a thriving underground and budding indie scene. Cities across the continent had their own scenes. Individual musical laboratories where each rehearsal and gig by each new group was a grand experiment in some kind of self-expression. And some of the noisiest experiments were being conducted in New York. That story is next. By the late 70s, many underground music fans in New York City had moved beyond punk and beyond new wave. Far beyond. They were bored with the old CBGB crowd. Too trendy, too popular. And this new wave thing? <laughs> Disgusting MTV bands. And this resulted in a short-lived movement centered in the East Village known as No Wave. This was equal parts punk and avant-garde art. Adherents believed that rock and roll had become too conservative, and even punk had become institutionalized. This is why many no-wave bands often had no musical training whatsoever. And, predictably, the music was negative, and harsh, and formless, and noisy, and often completely atonal. There were groups like DNA, and The Contortions, and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, and Brian Eno. Yes, Brian Eno, the super producer. He wasn't a performer, but he was a fan. He even collected some of the material for a compilation album. Every single no-wave band flamed out, except one, and they became one of the most important and most influential indie bands of the 80s. Sonic Youth came together in 1981 and became known for their use of feedback and guitars that were strangled with screwdrivers and drumsticks and a wall of noise that was felt more than it was heard. Although Sonic Youth's music became more structured as the 80s progressed, there was always this sense that they were pushing the edge of the musical envelope. And thanks to a deal with Black Flag's SST records, they were able to spread their influence throughout North America. Here's something from 85. This is called Expressway to Your Skull. While Sonic Youth was making beautiful noise in New York and the punks were tearing up California, something else was happening in, of all places, Minneapolis. This is where we find a three-piece band named after a Swedish board game, Husker Du, which translates as, do you remember, by the way. Husker Du would ultimately have a huge influence on hardcore punk across America. 
All three members appeared on stage in street clothes. No leather jackets, no mohawk haircuts. And although their music was loud and fast, the songs incorporated elements of a basic pop song. Melody and song structure were given equal standing with power and volume. The parameters of punk were pushed back. At about the same time Husker Du was stumbling through Ramones covers during their first rehearsals in bassist Greg Norton's basement, another important Minneapolis band was coming together in a basement on Bryant Street South. In honor of their heroes, the Sex Pistols, the replacements quickly became known for their unpredictable high-energy sets at clubs around town. Like Husker Du, their philosophies were firmly rooted in punk, but with even greater pop sensibilities. And then there was leader Paul Westerberg's anguished confessional lyrics. His sensitivity may have been a strange counterpoint to the volume and the rawness of the music, but you know what? It somehow worked. They signed to a local indie label called Twin Tone and put out music like this. The Replacements with Left of the Dial. Now keep that theme of radio in mind. We're going to go back there in a second. While The Replacements and Husker Du were doing their thing in Minneapolis, another indie band was starting to attract a following from their base in the university town of Athens, Georgia. That scene began in the mid-70s with the B-52s and a bunch of more obscure groups like The Fans and Pylon and The Tone Tones and Love Tractor and Method Actors. Shortly after the B-52s began to attract attention, a record store clerk named Peter Buck struck up a conversation with an art student who was always looking for strange 12-inch singles, and his name was Michael Stipe. Once they saw what their friends in the B-52s were accomplishing, Peter and Michael hooked up with two musicians from Macon, Georgia. There was bassist Mike Mills and drummer Bill Berry. They managed to find their first gig playing at a birthday party of a friend in a deconsecrated church. Pushed for a name, they decided on R.E.M. That was certainly a better name than some of the other choices they had, like uh, Slut Bank and The Male Nurse and Twisted Kites. R.E.M.'s first record was a 7-inch single made one year and 10 days after they played that party at the church on Oakney Street in Athens. They called the song Radio Free Europe. This is the original version. R.E.M.'s rootsy, made-in-America, anti-synthesizer guitar pop approach stood out from the British new wave bands that dominated the new rock of the early 80s, which means we've come full circle from guitars to synthesizers and back again. And pushing this message was a growing network of campus radio stations. Since R.E.M. and The Replacements and Husker Du and Sonic Youth and their ilk were staples of college radio stations, this music began to be called college rock. But not everyone could agree on that phrase. Yes, a label was needed because collectively these bands were now selling millions of records and concert tickets every year. Yes, they all sounded quite different and came from different scenes, but they were all held together by the fact that the mainstream as a whole wasn't interested in what they were doing. They were bands of dingy clubs, not big arenas and stadiums, distinct and separate from what the majority of rock fans were into. It was an outgrowth and an extension of both punk and new wave, yet it was different. The word that fans and critics gravitated to was alternative. Why? 
Well, the etymology of the phrase alternative music is murky, but let's let's try. Some say it originally described certain forms of FM radio in the 1970s, the kind of stations that would play slightly different music than all the rest. So instead of just playing Sticks and Journey in Boston and what was called corporate rock, they added the occasional punk or new wave track. Thus, they were an alternative to everyone else. It's possible. Another theory involves independent record labels. When you couldn't get a deal with a major record label because your sound was too weird or too radical, your only alternative was to try a small independent company like SST or Epitaph or Berserkly or Rounder or IRS or Alternative Tentacles or one of dozens of others. So therefore, bands who recorded for these alternative labels made alternative rock. And yes, this music was an alternative to the mainstream. Campus stations specialized in this stuff. They played lots of music from alternative labels. And as campus stations grew in number and influence, and as they became networked together by magazines and publications and conventions, like we said, they began to refer to this music as alternative. And finally, as some of these bands got bigger and began to cross over into mainstream consciousness, I guess REM was the first and the biggest, the word alternative became more widely used as this umbrella term for rock music that was different, that did not descend from the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin, but from Bowie and Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground and the Ramones. It was the birth of what we call in the 90s the alternative nation. Now that was North America. Things were similar, but different in Britain. For Chapter 9 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock, we're going to look at Britain in the 1980s. Like North America, there was a massive upswing of interest in music that was made outside the major label system, and some stunning music was being made. And goading it on, building it up, and tearing it down was the British music media, a unique thing to the UK. The birth of modern British indie culture next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.